I want to talk to you. <clears throat> Am I on? Morse code coming from the lights. <clears throat> I want to talk to you out of the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. This morning we've been in this chapter for the last three weeks and another week or so before we complete it. It is a rich passage. Read with me from verse 31. <clears throat> Jesus says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Think about that for a second. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Probably the <clears throat> most tragic theme in scripture, I think, and I think you'll agree, is that of God's unrequited love for wayward Israel. There is nothing more tragic as you read the scriptures. His people, whom he graciously chose for himself. Read that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. When God says to them, I, I, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous than others. In fact, you were the least numerous of people. I chose you because I love you. I chose you because I want to keep my promise to your forefathers. The same is true of us. God has chosen us simply because he's deigned to set his love on us. Not that we offer him anything. Most of us are aware of the <clears throat> expression, the chosen people, speaking of the Jews. They were chosen by God simply because he chose them. But he had two purposes for them. One, that they would be a light unto the, all the Gentile nations, if in fact they would obey him. And all the nations would see all the blessings that would accrue to them because they would be faithful to him. And secondly, they were to be the vehicle through which the Messiah would come into the world. The Jews are very precious to him. Yet they repeatedly proved themselves thankless. They repeatedly proved themselves faithless in terms of responding to his love. The Old Testament frequently depicts Israel, among other things, as a harlot. A harlot who left her husband, the Lord, and committed spiritual adultery 
with all the pagan gods and idols of the nations that surrounded them. But Israel's spiritual adultery and Israel's spiritual apostasy never caused God to stop loving them or forsake his unconditional promises to them. Perhaps the most vivid and unforgettable illustration of God's faithfulness is found in the marriage of the prophet Hosea to his unfaithful wife, Gomer. How many have read Hosea? It's an instructive, instructive book. Through the retelling of his own heartbreak, Hosea unfolds the poignant story of God's continuing love for his people, despite the fact that they had played the harlot, departing from their God. In the New Testament, in the parable of the landowner and the tenants in Matthew chapter 21, we see the picture of Israel's ultimate act of apostasy. And that ultimate act of apostasy was the rejection of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You can't apostatize any worse than that. Yet even that did not cause God to abandon Israel. Amazingly, the Apostle Paul reminds us in the book of Romans in chapter 11 that a day is coming when all Israel will be saved. And he recounts the theme from Zechariah. Zechariah writes, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. They will look upon him, they'll recognize him and see him, and they will grieve for what they have done and their rejection. In chapter 13, verse 1 of Zechariah, we read this. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Is God gracious and faithful? Absolutely, absolutely. Even during the darkest times of Israel's apostasy, when you read through the Bible, there was always a remnant of true believers. I'm reminded of the classic account of Elijah, when Elijah has gone through this terrific time of trial and difficulty, and he's, he's feeling like he's the only one. Do you recall that? He says, Lord, there's, I'm the only one left. There's no one else. And God very powerfully reminds him, no, no, Elijah, you're not the only one. I have 7,000 others who have now bowed their knee to the pagan god Baal. 7,000. There's always a remnant. This was true during Jesus' earthly ministry. We see, as, as we've been studying these early chapters of the Gospels, we see that here and there, like outposts of light in the darkness, there are those who believed in him, and as a result, they were saved. Simply, Jesus' own disciples, they believed. And you see their belief growing and growing and growing, ultimately to the resu- after the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. We see that group of Samaritans up in Samaria because of uh, that woman's testimony. There were people who believed and were saved. In John chapter 4, you also read of that royal official and his family, his household that got saved. So you see, again, there, there are 
there are these places and these people, even in the darkest of times, who believed and were getting saved. But most of the Jews did not believe in Jesus. And for many, especially the religious leaders, spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness expressed itself in this, this continuing, ongoing, growing hostility and this confrontation of Jesus in his, in his ministry. Not to be for him was, in fact, to be opposed to him. He reminds us of that himself in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, when he said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no in-between. Either you're with him, either you're for him, or you're not. It's much akin to what he says in Revelation uh, because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. He wants you, he wants you fervent. He wants you on fire. He wants you uh, expressive, involved, active with him, not simply sitting on the fence, kind of biding your time uh, back and forth. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are, are, we, are we with him? Are we with him? Are we gathering with him? Are we participating with him? Or are we not? Because if we're not, he he treats us as if we are just essentially opposed to him. Lukewarm. Lukewarm. From verse 17 of chapter 5 on to the end of the chapter, Jesus is defending himself. He's defending himself for for an event that happens earlier in the chapter. What was the event that happened in the early part of chapter five? Pastor Kevin taught you on that. What was that? What happened? Remember the lame man that was healed? Now, are the Jews persecuting Jesus for healing this guy? Simply for healing him? No, they're persecuting him because he healed him when? On the Sabbath. Now, you have to understand Jewish reckoning. For them, the Sabbath was the sum total of all of, all of their laws and all of their belief system. Everything was summed up in the Sabbath law. This was, this was absolutely critical to them. <clears throat> and they viewed Jesus' healing of this man on the Sabbath as a critical violation of the Sabbath law. Now, Jesus did not break any Sabbath law, did he? No, what did he break? He broke the rabbinic traditions that surrounded the Sabbath law. Now, the rabbis were noted for building layer upon layer upon layer of tradition and rules and regulations uh, that, that really covered over the law. And there were, there were, there were some 30-plus regulations just regarding the Sabbath that you could easily violate. And Jesus didn't defend himself by making the distinction between violating the law or a tradition. No, he defended himself by asserting his equality with the Father. This is the core issue. He is one with the Father. He is divine. He is God in the flesh. This is the issue. It's a core issue. It's an issue that every single cult, every single false religion denies that Jesus is God in the flesh. 
they may admit that he's the son of God, but not in the sense that Jesus defines himself as such. And because he's equal with the Father, verse 17 tells us that his, he has a right to work on the Sabbath just as the Father is working. Do you recall that? There's no difference. So his, his issue, and the issue for the Jews, is his equality with the Father. And that assertion only served to further fuel their persecution of him, as in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me once again. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. I mean, they are absolutely hell-bent on, on destroying Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath according to their perspective, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So not only was he a Sabbath breaker in their minds, but now he's guilty of blasphemy, which is among the greatest of all of the violations of the law, according to their perspective. Jeff shared with you last weekend how Jesus continued to emphasize and strengthen his claims to equality with God by doing equal works, the same works as God would do, by equally giving life, by receiving equal honor, and equally executing final judgment on all. All, all that the Father does, Jesus does. All that Jesus does, he sees the Father doing. In verse 30 will summarize his claim to be equal with the Father. And then in verse 31, this is where he says this astounding thing. <clears throat> He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Now think about that for a second. Is Jesus' testimony about himself valid or invalid? What do you think? It's valid. So why does he say here it's invalid? Why does he claim it's invalid? Now remember, you have to contextualize what he's saying. It's invalid according to who? According to his enemies. He didn't mean that his own self-witness was unreliable, but that his Jewish opponents claimed that his own self-testimony was not sufficient. The issue was not whether that testimony was true in and of itself, but whether his opponents would believe him. So he's saying, in effect, my testimony is not valid to you. Do you follow? Now, in our human judicial systems, a man's testimony about himself, especially if he's accused of something, is very often unacceptable and suspicious. Would you agree? We all know that we're liars, true? We all know that we try to put ourselves in the best light. We all know that we're prideful to one degree or another. We all know that we don't want to be accused of anything. And so our testimonies, true or not, are going to be held in some measure of suspicion. And they must be corroborated. If you're in a court of law, uh, the witness of a person has to be supported by witnesses. Would you agree? At least two witnesses are required not just merely one. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 17. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death. 
but no one should be put to death on the testimony of just one witness. So you, you hear, you see this theme, and we all understand it. You need corroborating witnesses for a testimony to be acceptable. In Matthew chapter 18, <clears throat> this passage that we very often use for uh, resolving conflict between uh, brothers and sisters in the church and, and issues of, of difficulty. Matthew writes, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Again, that theme comes forward. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, to the, he writes to the Corinthians who were, a, in many ways, a dysfunctional group of people. He said, this will be my third visit to you. And then interestingly, he quotes Deuteronomy 19, 15, he says, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, I've already witnessed to you twice. This is my third time. Let the matters be settled that I'm talking to you about. Apparently, there were ongoing issues among the Corinthians. And this is the point that Jesus was making. I want you to realize and notice how he accommodates himself to us and to our level. Does he have to defend himself at all? No, he does not. What he had said was absolutely true. He was the son of God. He is the son of God. He could not lie. He was precisely who he had claimed to be, and that fact should have been known. Men should have been searching and seeking after God so diligently that they could not miss the fact that he was the son of God. I had a marvelous conversation this week with <clears throat> Herman and Grace Chi, who are missionaries into China. And they called me this week and they wanted to meet before they went back to China. And they're precious people, precious people. We had this marvelous meeting. And uh, they were sharing with me what God was doing in China and, and, and the issues that they were having to deal with. And it just, what a testimony. But in the midst of our conversation, they were telling me about people who were coming to the Lord and they, they had met this one man who had found them and his testimony was that someone had given him a, a, a Christian Bible and he was reading it. And by the time he got to them, he says, I've been reading the Bible for five years. I love Jesus. Anybody who is truly searching for God and searching to know the truth, he, God will, by his spirit, reveal himself to that person. God himself says, if you diligently seek me, I will what? I will let you find me. And again, these people, these Jews, had they been diligently searching after God, they would have found Jesus. They would have recognized him. Jesus was so different than everybody else. He was holy, godly, amazingly different. However, to meet their need, to accommodate to their needs, he would prove the fact of his deity by meeting these demands for justice. Jesus would call an additional five witnesses to confirm his testimony. Does he have to do this? Not at all. 
but five unimpeachable sources to corroborate his claims that he, in fact, is equal with God, that he is the Son of God. Now, when he does this, and we're going to look at these five testimonies, when he does this, you have to appreciate this. These are not only testimonies to his enemies, they're testimonies against his enemies. How many, how many have had their mother say to them, how many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> Nearly all of us. I never forget my mom saying, how many times do we have to tell you kids? <laughs> and when Jesus, Jesus does this, I, I think this is amazing. Because in one sense, he's, he's doing everything he can so that we might be saved. He's going to the nth degree to make sure that all the bases are covered. But even in doing that, it's the testimony is against us if we don't believe. When these people stand before God on judgment day, they're not going to be able to say, I didn't know. God's going to say, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Witness number one, verse 32, I think is the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you why. <clears throat> he, Jesus doesn't, doesn't at all define here in this verse. He doesn't identify who he meant by another. Just look at it with me. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. Now, over in John chapter 14, Jesus uses that same word, another, to describe the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, he says, he says to his disciples, and I will ask the Father and he will send you and give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And so, you put those two together, very possibly now in this passage, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that the Holy Spirit's testimony, he says, about him was valid. And I think Jesus meant two things by that statement. He knew the truth of the testimony within his own heart. He knew the truth of the testimony within his own life. He had the consciousness Jesus had the sense, the awareness, the personal knowledge of the Spirit's witness within his own inner being, if you will. The Apostle Paul writes and he says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. You know that passage. And I think the very same thing is true, that the Holy Spirit bore witness with Jesus' spirit that he was in fact the Son of God. How did he know that? Now remember, he's born, when he's born into this world, Paul tells us that he, he, he gave up all of his godly privileges and prerogatives. Though he was fully God, he's fully man, but he lived as a man dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And I suggest to you that what happened was that the Holy Spirit witnessed to him that he was the Son of God, made him fully aware, fully conscious of that reality. And I think also that Jesus knew that the testimony and the work of the Holy Spirit 
in him and through him was a true testimony, a true work. The Spirit was about the business of convicting people, working in their hearts and working in their lives, convincing them of the claims of Christ. Who was it that convinced that Chinese man reading the Bible five years? Was it just simply reading the Bible all by himself? Do you think he all by himself discovered Jesus? No, it was the testimony, the witness of the Holy Spirit to him as he read that book that led him to Christ. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, and he describes him as one who testifies. So he testifies. Jesus says, he who testifies on my behalf, his testimony is true. I know that. In John chapter 15, verse 26, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He testifies. And so that's why I suggest to you that this first witness uh, has to be the Holy Spirit. The second witness we find Jesus speaking about in verses 33 through 35, this is John the Baptist. What was the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry? It was twofold. First of all, to prepare the way for the Lord, right? To prepare the way for the Messiah. Secondly, to point out the Messiah when he came. So John's ministry was twofold. And if you go back to the first chapter of John's gospel, you read about that, John exactly says that. This is who I am, this is what I've done. This is why I'm, I'm here. The Jewish authorities send a delegation to examine John and the fact that John testified to the truth. Again, all in chapter one of John's gospel. You can read that for yourself. I'm not gonna go through that and read that to you. But John's testimony supported Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. Now listen to what Jesus says about him. <clears throat> he says, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony or not that I need human testimony. But he says, I mention it that you may be saved. This is important. Do you think that John was regarded as a weighty person in Israel, John the Baptist? What do you think? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He was regarded by the people as a prophet from God. In fact, the first prophet in over 400 years that sent to Israel. And he carried, his testimony carried considerable weight. The authorities acknowledged John's importance, in fact, by sending that delegation to examine him and to question him. But just like their fathers had rejected the prophets beforehand that God had sent to them, the Jews rejected John's witness ultimately. Jesus tells them that he doesn't, again, need man's testimony. But they needed John's testimony. They needed to listen to John's testimony. Because without it, they couldn't be saved. They wouldn't be saved. And while they flocked to hear John, Remember, John says, John the evangelist says, they, they flocked, Matthew says, they flocked out of Jerusalem to hear, hear John preach and hear John speak. Their initial excitement began to wane when, they, when John began to call them to repentance. When John began to confront their hypocrisy, 
And then lastly, when John began to tell them they need to be baptized, and that was a baptism that was reserved for Gentile proselytes to Judaism, he's saying in effect to them, you are no different than the Gentile sinners, the Gentile dogs that you despise. Boy, then the people just began to, to leave wholesale. As thrill seekers typically do, they temporarily rejoiced in John's ministry, but they missed its purpose. And its purpose was to point out Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, you have to put yourself in there. You have to say, don't you see it? Don't you get it? And there are people today, people today who miss it. They were superficially drawn to John. And indeed, as many were and still are, superficially drawn to Jesus today. But they lacked genuine repentance. That's the key, isn't it? It's repentance. It's genuine repentance that gives you the staying power to get saved. If if there's no genuine repentance, you're not going to get saved. It's just very simple. Ultimately, they turned away from the light, Jesus says, the light of the truth that John had reflected because they loved the evil deeds of darkness. They should have taken John's testimony about Jesus seriously that they could be saved, but they did not. Then Jesus calls his third witness to corroborate his own testimony. And these are the miraculous works that he he was doing. In verse 36, He says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. As important and as weighty as John's testimony of whom Jesus said that he was the greatest man to have ever lived up to that point in history, Jesus is going to introduce weightier testimony than that of John's. The very works that he did Even Nicodemus, even Nicodemus testified to Jesus. If you go back into the third chapter of John, when they had that interview, Nicodemus says, no one could perform the miraculous things you are doing unless God were with him. We know this. So here's Nicodemus on the verge of becoming a believer, acknowledging the weighty deeds. Somehow God is with you. Because Jesus' works were in perfect harmony with the will of his father, Those very works testified that the Father had sent him. And yet, despite Jesus' supernatural and miraculous works, unmatched by anyone, no one was doing these things. Unexplainable outside of God's power. The Jews still would not believe. Can you imagine that? Jesus will say a number of times, look at the works, look at the works, look at the works. Because they're signs and they tell you about me and they tell you about who I am. In John chapter 10, verse 38, he says it this way. Even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles. That you may learn and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. See, he's continually stressing his equality with God. If your Jesus is not God... You got the wrong Jesus. Do you know that? All the cults, all the false religions, they may pay lip service to Jesus, but they will not give him equality with God. 
Then Jesus calls his fourth witness. Verses 37 through 38. This is the Father himself. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one that he has sent. The gospel record specifies two instances in which the father gave verbal testimony to the son. Do you recall what those two instances were? What was the first one? At his baptism, recorded in Matthew chapter 3. What was the second instance where the father gave verbal at his transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17? Both of those events, we read, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. This is my son. Verbal testimony. And in the latter event, he adds, listen to him. The unbelieving Jews had no clue. And Jesus rebukes them. He says to them, you have never heard his voice nor seen his form. The point is, because you don't believe, you can't hear his voice. You'll never see his form, quite simply because you don't believe. There were times in Israel's history when God audibly and God visibly interacted with his people. True? How about Moses? Did God audibly and visibly interact with Moses? Oh yeah, let me just start with the burning bush. And then you had the plagues and all the work that God does with Moses. Moses is in the cleft of the rock and, and God passes by and Moses sees his glory as he passes by. What, a, what an event. The Israelites of the Exodus. God visibly and inaudibly interacted with the Jews in the Exodus. Powerful. The prophets. Did God speak to the prophets? Yes. To Jacob, Gideon. God accommodates himself to Gideon. And Gideon fleeces God. I don't know about you, but that's astounding to me. And yet the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day, who had both the Old Testament scriptures, which were recorded all these events... And they had the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ right in front of them. They did not have God's word dwelling in them because they did not believe the one he sent, Jesus. Jesus is God's final and fullest revelation of himself. If you want to know what God is like, who do you look at? You look to Jesus. He is the final and fullest revelation of God as he's revealed himself to mankind. If you refuse to listen to Jesus, if you reject Jesus, you cannot know the Father. You cannot be saved. The word of God must dwell in a person. Jesus emphasizes this. The word of God must dwell in a person for that person to know God in any real personal way. Not just know about God, but to know God. And two things are necessary for the word of God to dwell in a person. 
Is this an important thing? Do you want to know what the two things are that are necessary? They're rather self-evident, I think, but let me just identify them to you. First of all, the word of God must be accepted as God's word. So we take this book, we call the Bible, the word of God, we must accept it as God's word to us. It must be accepted as coming from God. It must be accepted as fact. It must be accepted as truth. Well, I don't know. I don't know if the Bible really you know, was written by men. And if, if that's not a settled issue for you, the word of God will never dwell in you. And you'll never have faith. Secondly, the word of God must be dwelling in a person. Notice, dwelling, continuously dwelling in a person. And this means two things. First, the word of God must be in you. Not just around you. Not just among you. The religious person has the word of God all around him, doesn't he? It's on his table. It's on his desk. It's in his church. It's in his home. It's on his tongue. Ringing on his ears. The word of God is all around him. However, he doesn't have the word of God in his heart. And unless something is within, it's not dwelling in a person. And secondly, the word of God must be dwelling. It must not only be allowed to come into a person's mind and heart, but it must be grasped and clung to. Do I grasp God's word? Do I cling to God's word? It must stay within us and remain, not allowed to depart. What does the psalmist say? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Does that sound like someone who's clinging to the word, not allowing it to depart, cherishing it? It dwells in, it's active. Dwelling means the word of God is living means that it's moving. It means that it's ruling and it's reigning in that life. It means that it is active in that person's life, in that person's heart. You have to ask yourself, is the word of God active in my life? Is the word of God ruling and reigning in my life? Is it really dwelling? Dwelling means that the word of God is stirring and it's convicting and challenging to our lives. Does the word of God challenge you when you read it? It's not just intellectual information, but it's living. And is it challenging you? Is it leading to confession, repentance, growth, and maturity? When the word of God is dwelling in you, it must lead you to confession. It must lead you to repentance. And in so doing, lead you to growth and maturity. Is it teaching you love? Is it teaching you compassion, forgiveness? Do we naturally love? Really? No, no. Do we naturally have compassion? Do we naturally forgive? No, not without some impetus to our life, right? But the word of God dwelling in us leads to that. It teaches us. It teaches us what real love is all about. It teaches us what real compassion is. 
It teaches us how imperative forgiveness is. It teaches us what it means to truly be good. It describes for us what just behavior is all about. The word of God dwelling in one causes one to believe, causes one to trust God's Son, Jesus Christ, as his Savior and Lord. You see, when God's word truly dwells in a person, that person naturally accepts what God says and lives as God says. And that person believes God's Son. It would be absolutely impossible to accept what God says and not to accept what he says about about his son. Isn't that true? Absolutely impossible. You can't believe one thing on one hand and deny the other thing. To reject what God says about his son is quite simply to reject God's word. And if a person does not believe God's son to whom God himself has testified, then God's word does not dwell in that person. This is Jesus' whole point. And so he's called his fourth witness. Now he calls his fifth and final witness to corroborate his testimony. And his fifth witness is the scripture itself. Look with me once again at verses 39 through 40. He says to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Just because I'm reading the Bible, that makes me a Christian. That makes me a true believer. No, Jesus says that doesn't make you a true believer. He says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Merely knowing the facts of scriptures without fully embracing them in the heart and acting on them will not bring the blessings of salvation. In your searching the scriptures, if you fail to grasp that it is those very scriptures that speak about and point to one person, who's that one person? It's Jesus. Then your whole study of the scriptures is an empty, useless exercise. You might as well read Time Magazine Might as well watch the news as well as read the scriptures because it's not leading you to Christ. Do you recall after Jesus' resurrection, he made a number of appearances to his various disciples? Luke, in uh, the 24th chapter of his gospel, right at the end, records this one particular event. It's very significant. There are these two guys who are heading back from Jerusalem to their, to their, their own hometown, Emmaus. And they're traveling on the road and they're they're contemplating all that's happened in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden there's a third person walking with them. They don't recognize the third person, but it turns out to be the risen Christ. That's right. And so he begins as they walk, he begins to unfold to them all the scriptures and remind them of all that he had said to them. And then Luke, in an editorial remark, In verse 27 of that chapter, it says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The scriptures testify about who? About Jesus. All of Moses, all the law, all the prophets, they testify about Jesus. One thing I think is abundantly clear that can be said about Jesus' enemies 
They read the scriptures, but they read the scriptures in the wrong way. They read the scripture with a closed mind, a shut mind. They read the scripture not to search for God, but rather to find arguments to support their own suppositions, their own positions. They did not really love God. They loved their own ideas about God. They didn't humbly learn a theology from scripture, but rather they used scripture to defend a theology which they themselves produced. You see, there's still a danger today that we should use the Bible to prove our beliefs and not to test them. Do you remember, um, I think it's the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, when Paul is teaching on his missionary journey and he comes to a little town called Berea. And Luke reminds us, he says, and the Bereans were more noble than all the others that Paul had preached to. What made them more noble? They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. (laughs) You see, we can very easily lift verses out of context, and we do that. All of us have our pet verses, and we easily lift them out of context, and we make them say and support our position, what we believe, when in fact they probably don't. And this is exactly what Jesus' enemies did. And they made, I think, a still bigger mistake. They regarded God as having given men. Now, this is interesting. You have to hold on to this. They regarded God as having given men a written revelation. and, and, And the revelation of God is a revelation in history. It's a revelation in context. It's an important distinction to make. It is not God speaking, but rather... God acting. The Bible itself is not his revelation. It is the record of his revelation. They worship simply the Bible's words. We dare not be guilty of what they call Bible idolatry. This is the written record of God acting. He's an active God. He's always working, Jesus says. And this is the record of his acting. That's an important distinction for us to make. Why? Why was that so important for them? You see, because there's only one proper way to read the Bible. Only one proper way to read the Bible. How should I read the Bible? How should I read the Bible? I should read all the Bible as pointing to Jesus. Wherever you are, you want to say, Holy Spirit, show me Jesus. Help me realize Jesus. There are many things in the Bible that will puzzle you. Some things will distress you. Some things you don't understand. The temptation is to quit reading the Bible. Temptation is, well, I can never understand it. No, no, no. Keep what? Reading. Keep reading, keep reading, because you'll find these puzzlements cleared up. You have to realize you're on this road, you're learning, you're growing, and the Holy Spirit will be faithful to you as you're faithful to read, and he will show you Jesus again and again and again, and I promise you, your Bible reading will be an absolute adventure 
and it'd be an adventure. Not some old boring, oh, I gotta read my Bible. I gotta get my Bible reading in. Don't read it if that's your attitude. Turn on the TV. But if you read it looking for Jesus, you read it believing the Holy Spirit's going to lead you to Jesus, man, what an adventure. And I promise you, your, your soul will be absolutely thrilled. How many know what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Jesus, who is the supreme revelation and by whose light all other revelation is to be tested. The Jews worshiped a God who wrote rather than a God who acted. And because they didn't worship a God that acted, when Jesus came, they did not recognize him. Because what did Jesus come doing? He came doing stuff, doing stuff. And they completely missed him. What a tragedy. The function of scripture, as Jesus says, the function of scripture is not to give life but simply to point to the one who can give life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you again. We love you this morning. We praise your holy name. You are a great God. Jesus, we thank you that you set the record straight again and again, that you accommodate yourself to our limitations and to our weakness. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to justify yourself, and yet you do again and again. But Lord, those testimonies and those statements and those justifications are also a testimony against us if we do not believe. Keep your heads bowed for a few moments. I want to speak to those who are sitting on the fence. I want to speak to those who are lukewarm. I want to speak to those who are not really fully committed. We're just kind of getting by. I want to speak to those too who Maybe for the first time you've heard the truth about Jesus Christ. I want to remind you that we are all sinners. We are all rebels in our heart. We're prideful and arrogant. You may not want to hear that, but that's the truth. We have to admit that. We want things the way we want them. All of us have broken God's commandments and broken his laws. We've all told lies. We've all lusted. We've all stolen something. We've dishonored our parents. We've engaged in idolatry. We've put things before God. We can go on and on and on. So we're all guilty of breaking God's law. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The punishment is capital crime. There's a place called hell. God is not sending people to hell. God's purpose is to rescue people from going there. Much as Jesus this morning gave those defenses and called witnesses on his behalf and said, look, you got to believe in me. I'm the only way. You say, why is Jesus the only way? Because the wages of sin is death. Somebody is going to die for your sins. It's either going to be you or you can trust that Jesus died on your behalf 2,000 years ago to pay the full price for your sin and for your judgment. You get life Life abundant. If you were to die today, you have to ask yourself, what would happen to me? Would I go to heaven? Would I go to hell? Even if you choose not to believe in heaven or hell, 
be just because you don't believe doesn't make them any less true. And down deep inside, you know that that's true. You know there's a heaven. You know there's a hell. And the only way you'll go to heaven is by trusting in Jesus, by making a decision this morning. If you're sitting on the fence, if you're lukewarm, if you're not gathering with Jesus, then you're scattering. If you're not for him, full on, then you, in effect, are opposing him. If you haven't believed in him up to this point, you can this morning. You can make a decision. And I'm just going to offer you an opportunity to pray a short prayer of commitment. But before we even do that, I want to know if there's anybody that wants to pray, needs to pray, and ask for God's forgiveness. And while everybody's heads are bowed, you can signal me just simply by raising your hand, getting my attention. You're saying, Pastor, I want to pray that prayer. I want to get off the fence. I want to get on with Jesus. I want to be saved. Just raise your hand right now. Anybody at all? God bless you. I see your hand. Okay, I see that hand away in the back. I see that hand down here in the center. Keep them coming. I see your hand here. I see that hand over there on the aisle. Okay. I see that little hand. Okay, God bless you. Anybody else? Don't let this time pass. If God's speaking to you, okay, good. I see your hand. I see that hand way in the back. Okay, way, way back. Okay, good. All right, make this your prayer. Real simple, right where you're sitting. You already know your sins. Confess them to God. I'm a liar, God. I'm a thief. I'm a murderer in my heart. I've hated people. I'm an idolater. Admit. Confess those things. And, and be willing to repent. Be willing to turn. Turn from those things. Turn to him. Jesus, I turn to you. Forgive me. Forgive me and cleanse me from all this unrighteousness in my life. Save me. A simple prayer of commitment, a simple prayer of dedication, but from your heart is effective. If you prayed that prayer, now finish it by telling him, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for forgiving me and thank you for saving me. And commit your way to him for the rest of your life. From this day forward, brand new life. Amen, church? Amen and amen and amen. Hallelujah. Turn to your